Welcome, listeners. This is episode 43 of BachCast. I'm your host, John Hendren, and I am glad you're with us in this episode, which is focusing on the Orchestral Suite in D, BWV 1068. Um, this is a five-movement work by Bach. Five movements. And the little intro you just heard is from the most famous of those five movements, the second, which is entitled Air. And that performance is from a very uh, old but well-known release by the Jacques Lucier Trio, um, entitled Play Bach. It's actually, I believe, Play Bach. The second album that came out has a green cover. If you, if you were a collector of the, uh, of the vinyl recordings when they came out, Jacques Lucier is was a discovery for me some years ago. Um, my first introduction to him was sort of the reincarnation of his trio on the Teldec label, but this was the original Deca releases, I believe. And I uh, went back, I believe they were released in the 50s, and they are jazz interpretations of Bach. And that should have given you enough of a taste to recognize this piece, the air from the orchestral suite number three. Um, It's an interesting piece of music in that it is primarily uh, a melody against a bass, at least as you hear it there. Uh, there, is, there are other voices to it. There are two voices besides the lead voice. And there is some uh, controversy, maybe, I was, is a strong word. There's perhaps disagreement on how it should be performed. So this uh, suite opens with uh, a character very different from the air. It opens up with boisterous... Um, in a, in a French style uh, with trumpets and, and drums and a full string orchestra. Um, and there's, there's even woodwinds to be found, uh, depending who, who picks it up. Um, Bach, if you think of the way he wrote music and the way it was preserved for us, uh, the last episode, for instance, was around a piece for the violin. And we know Bach wrote that instead of six. Uh, according to uh, most folks you'll reference, there are four orchestral suites by Bach. And you think four. Usually things happen in sixes in Baroque music. And that is true. Um, we have sixes or twelves. If you think of the concertos by Vivaldi, they were published in sets of twelve. And if we think of the suites by Bach for cello, or we think of the sonata partitas, there's sixes, right? This, this idea of grouping things three by three. And so why only four orchestral suites? And so it's important to realize that Bach did not publish these as the four orchestral suites. They're sort of preserved for us. And if you look at the BWV numbers, they're interesting to me because they start uh, obviously, in the 1060s, the the last, the fourth orchestral suite would be BWV 1069. And yet, if you look in the Schmieder catalog, there is a BWV 1070. 
which is the so-called fifth orchestral suite. And it, there are many scholars who do not believe that fifth suite is by Bach. However, um, I happen to love it. But that is not the topic for this episode. Perhaps we'll explore that that strange B2B of 1070 in another episode. In 1068, there's, there's little controversy around the fact that it is by Bach. Um, the occasions for these things... Since Bach is not published in them as a set, very likely he was commissioned to write them for an event. Uh, if you look at his works, he he sometimes borrowed uh, pieces and reused them. For instance, we have um, reuse of some of his concertos in his cantatas. And so if you imagine there's a big ceremonial event and Bach pulled together the musicians he had at his uh, availability and uh, presented a piece like this. And so we get to this air. As I mentioned, it opens up with lots of trumpets and fanfare in, in a very French way. Um, we get this beautiful air. And I'm starting with the air just because it's the most familiar, likely, to you of the five movements. And we sometimes hear it with a solo violin. And here you heard it with the, with the solo piano, right, in the opening. And Lucier sort of gets around the fact that it's it's written for more parts by introducing some of the harmony there, but it really he has left out some of the inner voices. Um, this piece is, is so well-known and so well-loved, it's been rearranged a gazillion times. Um, certainly this isn't the only example I could have pulled from to show you that. And as I look at the historically informed um, performances of this, uh, I find some folks who are choosing to perform it one way, which is all the violins together, first violins, and others where a soloist emerges and plays it plays the little solo by themselves. And I'm not really sure. This is a curious to me. I'm not really sure. Um, that we've come to a consensus about the way it's to be performed. And so let's let's start and let's give it a listen. The first performance we're going to hear in the podcast today of the second movement, The Air, is by um, an ensemble that you've probably heard some from in the podcast before. This is Ensemble Sonnerie, the conductor, the first violinist, Monica Huggett. This comes from their release in 2009 entitled Bach, Orchestral Suites for a Young Prince. And here they present to us all five movements of the second, excuse me, the third orchestral suite, B2V 1068. And here is the air. And in this example, they play with all the violins together.
And so why would we perform it differently than that? Well, there's a thing, a little thing that you probably remember from either your own edification about Baroque music, or maybe you've listened to one of my podcasts before, and you remember that when we talk about dance movements, such as this, an air, and these are all dance movements. We have gavotte, we have bore, and we have a jig. These dance movements were typically in a binary form, meaning there was a, an A and a B, and the A got repeated and the B got repeated. And the whole idea of a dance form was that it, those, those sections could be repeated multiple times if the dance needed to continue. And typically the performance practice was to extemporize or improvise over the, 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 what, the written music because you wouldn't want to hear the same thing over and over and over again. So it was left with the performers to add some extra um, musical material. And so we get to this weird part in the late Baroque where we're referencing those old forms, those dance forms, and the question in performance becomes, do we, on those repeats, take the practice of adding ornaments or modifying the original content? And so if you imagine uh, doing so with a, a first violin section, whether it would be two people, three people, four people, five, uh, or if you were playing with a modern orchestra, maybe it's 16 violins playing the first violin part. Um, how do you modify the repeats? Unless it's all predetermined, right? That somebody's written that out and we've all decided we're going to perform in a different way. Which really takes away from the spirit of the music in to say that we're going to make it up on the spot, that we're going to improvise. Uh, improvisation, improvisations are not written out. Uh, they are they are made up at the time. If you think of a of a jazz player um, changing a line, you know you can write it out. I'm not saying that you can't actually write what the notes are, but the idea is that it's made up uh, at the moment. It's it's created as as based off a shell. And if you look at a a jazz chart, typically you'll see chords. You'll see uh, perhaps a bass line, you'll see some other parts, but we're talking about solos. If a solo is written out, it's an example of a solo. It's not the actual solo that you would be playing if you were a professional musician. And so in the performance of this, you think about, okay, we have a dance form. We have this beautiful solo line. However it's played, uh, could it lend itself to a single performer? And so we're going to now listen to another interpretation. This one is by the Italian ensemble Il Giardino Armonico, which is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, this is led by and, uh, Giovanni Antonini and the solo violinist Enrico Onofri.
Did you notice what they did? They decided they couldn't. They couldn't decide. They, they compromised. Not sure I like it. So the first pass, we get the solo violin, and the second pass, we get the full ensemble. Hmm, interesting. So you can do a lot with this line. This is actually a piece of music that I've had the opportunity to play um, with a modified ensemble. I've, I've played this with a string trio before, a string... Uh, a string trio, and the, the cool thing about having two violins and a bass, you kind of get all the parts there, and then the, the soloist, the, the top line, can be played by uh, another instrument. And I had a lot of fun with it, because I recognized that on the, on the repeats, I could do some interesting things. The the fact that the, the piece is well known and people kind of like, oh yeah, that piece, that piece. Even if you don't know who composed it or who wrote it, it it's common enough that you can get away with doing some interesting things with it. Um, so interesting, interesting way of approaching it. Growing up, my first exposure to this was actually one of the first set of CDs I actually owned, okay? So I may have told the story before that my first exposure to Bach was through an ensemble known as the English Concert uh, with the conductor Trevor Pinnock. And the, uh, the CD in question was of the harpsichord concertos, um, single harpsichord concertos by Bach, which include the famous reconstruction by Bach of the E major violin concerto. Bum, bum, bum. And that that became sort of the, my introduction to Bach, and said, in, inside my head, I'm like, wow, this is this is the music. Uh, it 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 sang to me, it spoke to me, and so when I went out and went to the store and decided to purchase something, you, you got to put yourself in context here. Uh, today, I have no reservations about going and if there's a CD I like or a recording I like that's come out, I, I have no reservation about buying it. I'm, I'm fully invested in this music. All the recording clips that you hear that I present on this podcast, I own them. They're either CDs or digital purchases. It's one of the issues I have with the streaming services that are now available. The, you know, you pay pay by month and have everything. Um, if you know anything about those services, I would not be able to put those clips into this podcast because they are rights managed. So I'd have to go through several hoops of, of getting you the examples. And so it's important for, for me that you know that, that I've purchased these, that these are recordings that I like. And when I'm critical of recordings, especially in the reviews, um, being a critic is not a fun thing. I have gotten a lot of hate mail and angry people um, that disagree with my reviews of recordings. And the thing you have to remember about that is um, taking context, while it, those words can prove to be uh, emotionally taxing on me, um, in, in this grand scheme of things, I have to remember that this is my opinion. I'm entitled to that opinion. I'm entitled to express that opinion. And that is my sort of American take on 
the whole context of, of writing a blog and, and writing about music is that I have an opinion and I have the right to share it. And people have the right to agree or disagree with what I say. Uh, and so that's all good. That's, it's fine if somebody doesn't agree with what I have to say. Um, but that said, I'm, I'm here to make uh, some recommendations to you. And that first recording I heard, I, I, it stuck with me. It grew. I grew up with it. And Simon Standage was the violinist with the English Concert. The release was this big 3D set. Uh, it was on DGR, uh, Deutsche Grammophon's archive production. Um, I don't have the set with me in front of me right now, but I remember it well because I've owned it for so long. Um, at the time, it was a big deal for me to purchase that. Uh, it was probably some, you know, $35, $40. And my mother probably was the one who was critical of me spending money on this, this fad of classical music. It was bizarre to her that I had this interest in it. And the fact that I wanted to buy this recording was, was, was a big deal. I was in the eighth grade, okay? And I wanted the six Brandenburg concertos and the four orchestral suites performed by Trevor Pinnock in the English concert. It is one of Archive Production's most uh, well-sold uh, releases, this three-CD three CD set. And it was recorded in the early 80s. If you put that in context, it's now 2017. Was it the most pristine recording? Was it the most uh, historically accurate? Was it was it any good? And I have to tell you that it wasn't bad. It it, it was popular for a reason that it it, it resonated with people. Um, the Brandenburg and Chairs were a digital recording. I remember that. If I remember correctly, the date was 1982. The orchestral suites were recorded earlier, and they were sort of bundled with the Brandenburg Concertos. Um, it was what it was. The English concert in the early 80s, um, I think the, the copyright for the orchestral suites was maybe 79. So this was, was sort of the near the beginning of their recorded history. The ensemble was formed in 1973. And by now, when they're recording these works, they were sort of coming into their own, and it gets well distributed. And I just have this memory of hearing the air with a single violin. And to me, that makes sense. But if you look at recordings today, uh, whether they're historically informed or not, you'll see a variety of interpretations with that air. Now, that controversy, let's put that aside. Let's, let's get into the rest of the, of the suite. And uh, if one of the details I just noticed in the, the recording by Il Giardino Armonico, this actually comes off a CD of theirs from 2001. It was one that I resisted buying. It was entitled Musica Barocca. Okay. And it was one of these compilation type albums, right? So Il Giardino Armonico puts out a lot of music by Vivaldi. They sort of become famous for their Italian interpretations, for their Armani suits, and and sort of their, uh, just the style was so different than anything else on record. And then they released this sort of album on the Das Alta Werk, um, 
label, which was uh, an imprint of Teldec Classics. Um, and it was sort of destined to be a bestseller. And I looked at it at the store. I remember seeing it at Tower Records. Um, so in 2001, I had moved to my current, where I currently reside. Um, Tower Records was still around. I go into the, uh, the the classical section, which was never had anybody in it. And I am, I'd always start the A's. I'd move my way down to the Z's. And I'd start going through all the CDC. It was new. Um, this particular Tower Records didn't have a new releases section. So that's how you found the new stuff. You'd have to recognize it. And I get, I'd, who knows where it was located, but it was in there. And I remember seeing the sort of brownish cover it had a sky picture um, with light coming through clouds, and there was like an angel on the front. And I remember turning it over and going, what is this? It's a new album by El Jardino Armonico. It should have been put in my bin. I turned around, I see, oh, it's, it's like Baroque favorites. Don't need it. Put it back. I resisted it for how many years? It was only last year, 2016, that I finally gave in and decided to go purchase it. It was... Uh, it was part of the Il Giardino Armonico set that is available as a 10 CD set. And, and so I finally had the opportunity to hear their interpretations of uh, the pieces. And included in that was the third orchestral suite. And I have to say, I actually like the interpretation. I wish they, I wish they had recorded all four. Uh, the one thing you may have noticed in the in the little snippet I gave you earlier uh, was what's in the bass. So if you know the ensemble, you know the ensemble's makeup at the time, sort of the founder members are uh, Giovanni Antonini, the recorder player, the flute player. Uh, and you have Luca Pianca, the, uh, the lute player. And I believe the third founding member was a cellist, and I forget his name. And then later, by several years, we have Enrico Nofri joins the ensemble as, as lead violinist. And so you have to have the lute, right? If you have if you have Il Giardino Monico, you have to have the lute. Um, and so there's this lute playing the basso continuo part, which I, I find kind of, uh, I won't say hysterical, it's not hysterical, but it's, it's curious at best um, that... Bach in his basso continuo would have an Italian lute uh, playing the bass line. Um, there have been performances where where instruments like the lute are included. I remember quite um, vividly the performance by uh, the Academy of Ancient Music under the directorship of Richard Egar when they came to the United States and did a tour of the Brandenburg and Chairs of Bach. They have William Carter, who's lutenist for the uh, that ensemble as well as the English concert, and he is playing a large bass lute, like a theorbo uh, type instrument. He's he's, I mean, it's loud in the context of the of the ensemble, um, loud to the point where you you notice that there's a lute playing along, and it's just a sound that. Uh, didn't sound germane to what I was used to in hearing Bach. And there's been this discussion of whether an ensemble bends itself 
to the composer or if the music bends itself to the ensemble. And Trevor Pinnock actually was one who, who made a comment like that once, that, that they, were, they were going to perform on original instruments, but um, it more of was a conversation to have with the music and what that ensemble did with it as the English concert and who the English concert was, rather than trying to bend over backwards to to match the sound of the composer of the time of the of the of the country of the all the traditions, and so it, it is an interesting um, philosophical idea to have when you when you play this music. Um, does the music come to you, or do you come to the music? Uh, the early version of Musica Antiqua Con. Uh, very much was of the opposite idea that they would bend themselves to the music. Um, I remember reading the the liner notes of my first recording, my first exposure to Couperin's Les Nations. Uh, this this idea of having orchestral suites again, right? Um, small orchestra, but the idea of suites of music and. Uh, Gerbil writing in the notes about how they chose the strings for their violins based on evidence of what was used in France at the time. And you you think of that, and then you think of, well, this is Bach, there's a Basso-Cotino part, we've got a loop player, he's a founder member, he's going to play, of course, and was, was there a lutenist in Bach's orchestra? Who knows? Um, it's, it's interesting. Of course, we knew Bach wrote music for the lute or the Latin work. There's controversy around that. So I don't really have a problem with hearing Mr. Pianca uh, play as part of Il Giardino Monico. I just point out to you because it's, if you have a, a tuned ear and you can hear those small details, it's, it's going to stick out. So here's the opening of the third orchestral suite, probably my favorite of the opening overtures. And I'd like you to listen for whatever you recognize as being French. We'll kind of digest that afterwards. But this is a big French opener.
opening. Bom, da 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 dun, da 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 dun, right? Opening on the major uh, D major triad, he has uh, drums, timpani, and trumpets to to basically add weight to the the sound. And he has an orchestra that includes oboes and bassoon. And it's this big opening with dotted rhythms. That dotted rhythm motif. Bum, da-dum, 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 da-dum. That, that's a very French um, reference to French music. Okay. So going back to a composer like Lully, uh, who was actually Italian but came to France and is thought of as a big French composer, uh, would write these, these orchestral numbers. Uh, he wrote ballets. He, he wrote music that had these dotted rhythms in it and kind of codified as that is a French style. And so Bach references that. This is an overture. This is, this is a big piece. And he, he does it so well. He's not copying somebody else's music, but he's making his own interpretation of it. Um, we open with Il Giardino Armonico, and then I faded out and gave you a little taste of, well, Trevor Pinnock. Uh, Trevor Pinnock, surprise, surprise, plays a little faster. Um, his his tempo is a little faster. Um, the sound quality, despite being the early 80s, I think it, it, it carries very well. And so I will be among the ranks that think, despite the age on this recording, uh, it is a favorite of, of mine. It has stood well the test of time. There's a lot of detail inherent in the playing. And the, the, consider this, 1978-79 and today's 2017, and we're saying the music is, is fresh-sounding. Uh, it's remarkable. Uh, considering the history of historical performance practice, the first recordings, mainstream recordings, really occurring in the late 60s. You can go back further, of course. You can go to, you know, uh, the first recordings of harpsichord and whatnot. But in terms of ensembles playing this music with original instruments, uh, it's it's quite astounding that that Pinnock and his uh, his ensemble with the leader Simon Standage on violin um, were able to. Um, establish a style that still seems somewhat in vogue today. So that is the opening of this uh, orchestral suite. Dotted rhythms are the takeaway. Uh, if I played more, it, it gets faster. After the repeat, uh, we get a faster section. Typically, French overtures are a slow, fast, slow uh, type of arrangement. And because there are repeats, uh, there are opportunities to do things. Neither of the ensembles really take advantage of that, uh, nor do I really typically hear ensembles that do. If, if so, I'm probably missing it. So as you already know, the, the second movement is the famous air. And then we have a set of gavats. And I will present those to you now from the leadership of Trevor Pinnock on harpsichord with the English concert. <laughs> Thank you. 
So I start with the English concert, that that old recording, and, and followed it up with one that was at the same tempo. Um, the ensemble known as Café Zimmerman under the direction of Pablo Valetti um, recorded this as part of their six CD set. They came out one at a time and then they were available later as a set uh, entitled uh, Concerts or Concerts avec plusieurs instruments. They did uh, the Brandenburg Concertos, they did some other concertos, and they did the orchestral suites by Bach. And this appeared in the fifth volume, which was released in 2011. And I find it so curious that they took the same uh, tempo, uh, not to be really that much of a surprise, but the sound quality, the comparison there is, it was very, um, it would be a hard time, I think, distinguishing between the two. If I get very critical, I think that maybe the recording quality in the 2011 edition is a little more transparent. There's a little more richness to some of the, the instrument, the sounds of the instruments. However, I think they're very comparable. What is curious to me is in that uh, edition by Cafe Zimmerman, on the second gavotte, they sort of jack up the tempo. And that I don't quite understand. Um, a gavotte to me would have this, the same tempo no matter which gavotte you played. Uh, and they kind of speed it up. So that's that's kind of interesting. But I want to give you a taste of what the second one sounded like. Again, very, very French. Very formal sounding, right? Uh, this is music that uh, likely was to evoke the spirit or the esprit uh, of another place, of another um, another culture. And it's interesting how far Bach goes to capture that uh, perception of Frenchness that he and his um, colleagues would have uh, understood at that time in, in his place in life. Likely, this was performed uh, at a venue in Leipzig. This is an example from the, the next movement, the Boré, uh, by the ensemble Sonnery, the directorship of Monica Huggett. I really like the transparency in the sound here. Uh, to me, this recording is super crisp sounding. It's, it sounds like you're right there. Uh, this was a release from 2009, as I believe I mentioned before. Um, she features in this recording... Um, the oboist Gonzalo Ruiz, who uh, in the second orchestral suite, which is uh, featuring a flute, um, their version features the uh, the oboe instead, which is a kind of a reconstruction. Uh, but their recording, the harpsichord to me, really stands out in the mix. 
uh, however it was captured with the microphones and the, and the balance. The, the harpsichord is super prominent in the sound and it, it lends itself, I believe, to that crispness I mentioned. Um, whether it's authentic or not, whether it's what you would hear in the audience versus what you'd hear right there, I, I'm really not going to get into that. I just, I really like the fact that they've chosen to record these suites with a very lean ensemble. You'll notice in this movement, we don't hear the drums, we don't hear the trumpets. We just sort of hear that, that crisp articulation, uh, which makes uh, the dance really kind of come alive. And because they're a little leaner and because of that, that um, the, the attack, the sharp attack to the music, they perform it a little faster than I'm, I'm used to hearing, which I think works. I think the character uh, comes across. The last movement of this uh, suite is a jig. I'm going to continue with uh, ensemble sonnery, and then we'll finish with a comparison with uh, another ensemble that we've not yet heard um, to finish off Bach's Third Orchestra Suite. <laughs> So what do we hear there in the second version of the jig? We heard the trumpets and the timpani. And yet we didn't hear them with ensemble sonnerie. Why not? Well, there is a belief that this suite uh, lived multiple lives and that the trumpets and the, the timpani, these sort of outdoor martial instruments, were added later. As a, as a sort of an amp to amplify the music. So if you imagine if this piece was written for a chamber ensemble and then somebody said, hey, we want to hear it outside. We want to hear it loud. Can you help amplify it? And you, you add some string players. Maybe you take away the solo part for the air and you add timpani and trumpets and you add, you sort of up that festive factor. You amplify the sound by by having them pronounce the rhythms and the, the tonality. And you've come up with this sort of new version. And so that's what they're doing. They're, um, the one ensemble is playing it in perhaps unoriginal guise. And the second one, which in this case was performed by Musica Antiqua Köln under the directorship of Reinhard Goebel, um, they did release the four orchestral suites as a set. 
I believe it was, yes, I am correct. They, they released it as their own set, um, separate from the Brandenburg Concertos. When they did their Brandenburg Concertos, they also recorded the so-called Triple Concerto, BWV 1044. I got a hold of all these as a big set. Uh, it included the, the title of the set, which... I can't even tell you how many CDs it was. It's multiple CDs. It's entitled Bach, Brandenburg Concertos, Orchestral Suites, Chamber Music. And um, it included basically three different releases by the ensemble Musica Antigua Colm. It, it could have included more. It could have included The Art of Fugue. It could have included um, the musical offering. That's the, that the one piece by Bach I do not own by Musica Antigua Colm, the musical offering, BW 1079. But this came on a multiple CD set, so-called Collector's Edition. And I already had owned the Brandenburg Concertos, but I, I bought this set because I so coveted, I remember, at the time, getting their chamber music recordings, the flute sonatas and things of that nature. Um, and so this, I thought, was a, was a, was a good buy. Um, Musica Antigua Colm uh, is somewhat controversial in the recording because of their treatment of the French rhythms. If you were to go back and listen to the two recordings again, you notice how short they play. Ta-da! Ta-da! They play those dots very, very close to the next beat. And so it is a, it's a slightly different interpretation of how to play those rhythms. Um, I think it works. I'm not an expert. And Lord knows if, if, we, if we passed out this music in various parts of Europe around the time it was written, we're likely to hear these variances as much as we hear them in ensembles today. So with that, I wanted you to be able to hear the flavor, the, the gestures that are part of one of Bach's well-known instrumental pieces, the Third Orchestral Suite. And if you've heard it before, you likely knew the famous air, and I wanted you to hear it in its its full glory. And the recordings I sampled today are ones I recommend that you listen to. They're certainly not the only ones out there, but they're ones that I have in my collection. They're ones that I enjoy for one reason or the other. Whether or not it's a solo violin or it's a whole section playing that famous air, um, this is music by Bach that you're likely to be have some familiarity with, but maybe not to the extent of all of those dances that make up this five-movement suite for orchestra. And I also want you to know, if any takeaways, that it may not have always existed in the guise that you just heard it, complete with trumpets and with drums. It may have had an earlier life um, without those outdoorsy type of instruments. And it's unique, I think, amongst Bach's works uh, in that it's uh, it likely was written for a particular occasion. Uh, we think of most of Bach's music. Uh, if you think of the cantatas, they were written for an occasion too, a specific time of the liturgical year. We know that they were performed on certain days, certain Sundays, but likely Bach reused that material. And so 
Wouldn't be surprised if you heard some of these licks in other guises. And of course, we don't know what may not have been preserved in the works of Bach. He may have used some of these um, themes as well. So we have been listening to a lot of Bach's more intimate works. In the last episode, we listened to the, uh, the second partita for solo violin. So I, I wanted to change it up this time. A little bit of a different, uh, more lighthearted work. I hope you enjoyed listening. My name is John Hendren, and I'm the host of BachCast. If you want to know more about our podcast, you likely can go to the web at bieberfan.org, B-I-B-E-R-F-A-N.org, a little website that I've been writing since uh, the very late 90s, um, reviewing classical and mostly Baroque music. So if you're interested in recordings and you want to know some of the better ones out there or ones to avoid even, uh, I review recordings. I typically like to pick recordings that I enjoy, at least enjoy in some some capacity. Um, but I try to be honest, try to be fair, and give you a reading of what I think of the music. And as I said earlier, you may agree, you may disagree, but at least if you read some of my reviews, you get a, a sense of what my tastes are, and you can decide whether you agree with those or disagree. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of BachCast. And as always, thank you for listening.